Uh, Grab your Bibles, if you would, go to Genesis. We're in a series entitled Genesis, and this is like week seven or eight. You're going to stand? I'm going to stand. I can't sit. I'm excited. Oh, she's really excited. Why? Because we're talking about Ezra Connecto. So if you guys got all the got the email, we're going to explain all about this passage from Genesis chapter two. (laughs) All right. So go to Genesis chapter two. Find your way there. And um, we have some preliminary opening comments. Uh, just so, as part of some introduction. First of all, I'd just like to say that um, I just have to confess that I'm never more attracted to Kevin <laughs> oh, than when geez. he preaches on this subject. So I'll try to calm myself down. So but... today we're announcing 52 weeks <laughs> of Kevin 50... preaching on women in the Bible. That's right. <laughs> I've just now made that decision. <laughs> we I won't, we won't ask the board's opinion on it. We'll <laughs> exactly. Move on right from... yeah, it's going to be a long series. Hang in there. <laughs> But it's going to be a benefit for the community. It really will. It'll be really nice. That's right. <laughs> okay. We should probably tell them what Ezra Connecto means. No, we're like going least... to get to that. Oh, okay. We'll we're get We're going to get to that. All right. Okay. Well, um, Nick Kristoff posted this article recently on his Twitter feed. He's a columnist with the New York Times. And this is from the 1950s in the New York Daily. And the question on the street that week was, if a woman needs it, should she be spanked? And all of these four men who look like a lineup from a crim- don't they're, they they're look? They're a little too serious. They 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 look oh, like a little serious. Right now. I'm, a little like, I'm a little frightened by all of them. If I met any of them, I would be scared. They all say yes. If a woman needs it, she should get spanked. This is 1950. That is not that long ago. All right. This is. I mean, this is. Our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation. This is not that long ago where. These men on the street said, yes, Um, sometimes, you know, if they're going to act like a child, they need to be treated like a child, one guy says. Um, Another guy says, you know, we've got to keep them in line. We, you know, in for, you know, we have to, ounce of prevention, you know, just so it's a little bit, you know, fear constantly um, that you would spank your wife. Yeah. I can't believe this article. So then we also have, of course, we've made some progress. Prior to this, we had the women's suffrage movement and the right to vote and women fighting for things that we... So women's movement in the United States has come a long way. We've gone from spanking to CEOs, and we're happy to have made it to CEOs and CFOs and where we're not being asked on the street again in major city metropolises of the United States only 50 years ago, um, how should you handle a discipline issue with your wife? We've changed, haven't we? We've had some changes, yes. Now we've got Lean In and we've got Yahoo CEOs and and we've got opportunities for women to have grown a little bit. But I think we'd all agree that in our society at large, um, we may not have yet arrived. There are still areas of the United States, of the world at large, where um, women are being treated differently than men. Um, being discriminated against, being abused in a variety of ways. And we actually think that the opening chapters of Genesis address this issue and teach us how we should be viewing men and women as we're both made in the image of God. You'll remember that just a few weeks ago, we talked about how male and female, God created them in his image and his likeness. And we believe that if we start our conversation understanding that both male and female are created in the image of God, that we'll arrive at a different place other than this slide, and even in greater places than this slide and where we are today. A lot of people 
you know, just by the very nature of who Danielle and I are, we get a lot of questions sometimes, and we're going to share a couple of those stories. And the tension for me is in preparing for this. Now, we like to teach the Bible. We like to teach what's going on here, get back into the literary context and the history kind of a deal. And so we're spending a little time talking a little bit about gender. And I'll be honest with you that I have a little bit of a struggle with that particular issue because I do feel like in our culture we've come a long way, but yet at the same time, I don't feel like we've actually gotten there. There's this tension that I feel between those two realities. And I'm sure um, all of us in this room probably have, have run into some sort of issues or comments that are made or realities that we face that pose gender stereotypes or gender roles in front of us. And so as somebody who has come along, I'll share a little bit more of my journey later, has come a long way in, this, in thinking about this and, and understanding the scriptures, I'll admit to you that there may be some who are listening to this talk saying, why are we talking about this again? Like, haven't we figured this out? This is, you know, the 21st century. Um, you know, we've, we have things like this happening, movements, etc. And then there's other people on the spectrum that are going to say, well, why are we talking about this again? Isn't the Bible just clear that there are certain roles and, you know, levels for particular genders? And so, I, re- I want to just kind of voice and recognize that there's a tension that I think still exists, and we face that. And if you face that, we hope that this is helpful. And we ultimately hope that the story of Genesis, as Daniel mentioned, uh, becomes really the standard bearer for how we think about this particular issue. Because as we, you know, as she, she talked about image, I talked about story at the very beginning. I think this story of Genesis and what is going on in the story also illuminates something really brilliant about how we should think about each other. Uh, male and female, and the whole of the community in that sense. And this is an issue that impacts all of us, whether or not you're married, whether or not you um, are thinking about getting married. At whatever point, if you are a human being on the face of this earth, you are interacting with persons of the opposite gender. And those issues of identity and um, whether or not we're made in the image of God and where where women fit into that and where men fit into that, that's going to impact all of us in your workplace, in your homes, in your families, um, in your neighborhoods, and in your church communities. And so I think, yeah, we've got, we've maybe gotten to some places where we need to be, but we've also, maybe we have a long way to go. And in some ways, no more... That's maybe not any more evident than in the church yeah. occasionally. I know I a, the church has some a friend of mine um, here in this community was asked, so what's Spark like anyway? And, um, and she was trying to figure out what the question was. And she said, well, are, is it just mostly women and children? Because I'm one of the senior pastors. So because a woman leads here, you all must be children or women. And yet would we make that same assumption if a man led? It must be all men. But somehow in our community, in our church communities, you're gender neutral and I am all woman. So we don't ever have the yeah. opportunity, right, to, to be able to um, address maybe some of the issues that come up into our communities in different ways as a result of our genders. This is exemplified, by the way, by a little Google search, if you just take a look. If you type in women's ministry, you immediately see this. Now, that's fine if you love pink and purple. And for me, it kind of feels like all of the images are advertisements for a feminine hygiene product. Um, So this is actually a slide for a women's ministry. And of course, you know, her clothing indicates that everything's good. Um, And so we have immediately these women's ministry, this image, when we think about women's ministry, pink and purple, flowers, teapots, um, lace, doilies, 
and, you know, feminine hygiene projects. So we've got that for women's ministry and for men. Now, conversely, when you search for men's ministry, you also have kind of typical iron sharpens iron. There's lots of tanks and there's um, a Home Depot. There's a Home Depot kind of a deal. Uh, and, you know, because if you're going to do men's ministry, you've got to have a hammer and some power tools kind of a deal. Right. Men don't uh, listen unless they can grunt. And, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. And this is kind of the image, you know, that, that is set for the men as well. And what's fascinating, uh, well... They used you for a model for this, right? Yes, they did. I, yes, that's right. Yes. I, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have to say it. It was kind of obvious. It is obvious. It's kind of yeah, obvious. Yeah, exactly. So... With this, we recognize that there are still gender stereotypes. There's ways in which we think about gender, the ways in which we think about relationships, ways in which we think about each other. Um, You know, I heard Patrick Lencioni actually talk about this book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. And he said, you know, I haven't read the book, but I've had portions of it read to me out loud. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Okay, so... so we're saying this as a part of introduction to recognize and to acknowledge that there are ways in which we think about things and there are ways in which we have acted and operated within the church um, that we just need to be illuminated to before we get to the text because that may help us understand how do we read passages like Genesis chapter 2. So let's go there, Genesis chapter 2. This is the creation of woman and we'll start in verse 18 and let's read this passage together. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam... No suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman. For she was taken out of man. So let's get to some of the things that are. Can I read in the last two oh, verses? Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. And that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now the phrase there for suitable helper is the phrase Ezer Konegdo. Everybody say Ezer. Ezer. Konegdo. Konegdo. And it comes from Genesis two eighteen that we just read. And just a reminder that Genesis one twenty seven of that of Danielle's message was about the image of. God, we want to keep those two kind of tightly coupled together regarding what does this phrase, Ezer Konegdo, which is traditionally uh, translated helper, suitable, help me, what, is this, what does this mean? What's going on here? One of the first observations that we make in this Genesis story is if you remember from Genesis 1, everything that happens in Genesis ends with a proclamation or a declaration that it is good. It is very good. Good, 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 good. And God looks at all the particulars of what he makes and says it is good, declares, sees how good it is. And man, or the singleness, I suppose, or the individuality of man is the very first thing that God calls not 
good. And many different people have probably interpreted this verse in a bunch of different ways. It seems that just like when we went over the Genesis story, day one goes with day four, day two goes with day five, day three goes with day six, that everything has its place and has its pattern. And the thing that is good is that everything has its equal. Light has its luminaries. The expanse has the animals that fill. The dry ground has the the man who lives and inhabits on. Just like everything has its couple. The thing that is not good here is loneliness. The thing that God identifies as not good is that the man is alone. So that's something that's important for us to understand. So he says he's going to make an Ezer Konegdo for this man. Now, these are the different translations. Some translate help me. Some English translations say suitable helper. Some talk about helper who is right for him. Uh, The amplified version uses suitable, adapted, complementary to try to explain what is this phrase. Helper fit for him. Helper as his partner. So what does this phrase mean? There's all sorts of different ways of thinking about this. The first is to understand the first part is Ezer that we said before. Now, when you take a look at this word Ezer, throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, it is describing not somebody who is of lower class or not somebody who is like an assistant to or subordinate. Or a subordinate. Mm-hmm. This word describes actually God who comes in to help his people. And you see this in Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 33. Did you want, I think. Psalm 10, I think we're going to look at one, Psalm 121. Okay. Psalm 121 is a very commonly known passage. Uh, let's read that and we'll see this usage of the word Ezra here. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my Ezer help come from? My Ezer comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And then the rest of the verses of Psalm 21 explain what it means if God is your Ezer, your help. What does that mean he's doing? He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. For the Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. And the Lord will keep you from all harm. That's what an Ezra is. Keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. So here again, that phrase at the very beginning, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my Ezra come from? My Ezra comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Traditionally, when we've heard this phrase, helper, many times we hear that phrase, and when we apply it to this passage, it has the connotation of subordinate, or assistant, or somebody who is secondary to the primary task. And if you read the rest of the Hebrew scriptures and try to think a little bit more clearly about what's going on in the Genesis 2 passage and and take all the rest of these contexts, perhaps we think about Ezra as somebody who is a rescuer, a deliverer, and even a defender. There's a lot of military language that often comes by with this word Ezra. So important is this word Ezra, that To this day, Jewish people would name their kids, and even in the ancient day, with names like Ebenezer and Eliezer. You will see these names as very uh, righteous people, people of strength, people of valor. And if you take a look very closely, right inside of their name is God is my help. Ebenezer actually means helping stone. 
And so this word is imbued with a lot of strength. It doesn't mean... Ezra. The word Ezra, God is my help. I always do that every time we do Ezra. Because those of you who know sign language, this means help. This means amen. So every time I think of Ezra, it just comes to mind. So let's... I think I would love to encourage us to think about this helper. And when you read in your English translations, help meet or helper suitable, uh, a helpful partner, all those different types of words, there may be something much more deep and much more important going on than just simply assistant, subordinate, or, you know, the, the nice person to come along and get coffee and make copies for you. Adam kind of a deal. I mean, I think the reason why we go there first is like when you were a kid, you would walk up to your parent and say, can I help you? Right. And when you did that, they would say, yes, that meant, can I do the thing that you're already doing? Can I, can I do the thing you've already decided to do that day? Can I, it wasn't, can I come alongside and change the mission? Can I come alongside and change the vision of our work project? You know, when I'd ask my dad if I could help him, that meant, can you, you know, can I hold the nail and you drive, you know, can I assist you in doing what you're doing? So when we read the word help in our English, it makes sense that that's the first thing we think about. And when we live in a patriarchal society, it makes sense that the first thing we're going to think of is somebody that can assist the man. But at this point, we should be stopped immediately and say, wait a minute, where else is that word help used in the Bible? It's most often used to talk about what we need from God. And we should also stop right there and say, wait, let's go back for two seconds. If male and female are made in the image of God, and now we're having the story of the female creation, then are we suggesting that part of the image of God is subordinate? Or part of the image of God only exists to assist me with my mission. So you see already there's some conclusions that we have to be careful to draw if we're going to decide that in this only this incident in chapter 2, helper means assistant. Whereas everywhere else in the Bible, it's going to mean somebody that can bring about defense of enemies, rescuer, and defender and, and deliverer. This word connecto uh, is found also throughout the scriptures to mean something like face-to-face or opposite-facing, equal to and adequate for in every respect is how one theologian translates this, or corresponding to. The imagery here about connecto is like you need beams that need supporting against each other. And rather than uh, if you didn't have the opposite supporting beam with the equal weight and the equal force, then neither could stand. So taking all of this into consideration, and Ezra Konegdo is somebody who comes alongside to rescue, to redeem, to partner with, and to have equal and adequate corresponding force to do and to accomplish that which God had called Adam to do in the garden. And when I say Adam, we mean humanity. Um, we're going to actually get to that in just a second. Anything else you wanted to say? On I think it kind of reminds me of that game you used to play when you're standing in long lines at the amusement park. You know, where you have to try to knock the other person off their feet. <laughs> have you ever played that game? If you haven't, you should. It's really fun. We're when, both youth pastors. Right. So, so when we've stood in a lot of long amusement park lines. When I think of Connecto, that's what I think of. I think of somebody that's standing exec- absolutely equal opposite to me and that can give me resistance, that can give me strength, that can sit there and, and we can have a, a conference. Don't, don't let me fall. Right. But that there's, there's responsibility there and it's completely opposite facing. And that's really what connecto means. 
It can, it's often translated as before, opposite, in front of. There's a lot of different. When uh, the Israelites are standing on the two mountains as they're entering into the promised land with Joshua. And they say the blessings and the curses from Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. When they're standing there, they're saying on opposite mountains. That's the word connecto right there. It's opposite. Now, there's something really beautiful that I'd like to share with you that I think supports this idea. And that's the naming in Genesis chapter 2. Notice the passage that we read has at the very beginning this statement. There was no suitable helper for Adam. And then it goes into this passage where there's the naming of the animals. And at the end of that passage, there was no suitable helper. Now, people, theologians, commentators have thought, why does the naming of the animals stick right in between the phraseology, suitable helper, suitable helper. What's going on there? Because it says very clearly that Adam, when the animals come through, whatever he called them, that was its name. So, like, you know, Bambi, Dumbo, Charlotte, and I call this one YouTube. Um, <laughs> so when that naming comes by, that was its name. Now, we've talked before, maybe you've heard from other places, that naming in the Bible is something very significant. It's not just a title. It's actually a declaration or some sort of way of declaring that I have authority over. Parents get to name their children because they are the parents and they name their children. It's a a position. It's a position of authority. It's, It's a way of saying that I have stature over you to name. Think of the times God gives people different names. And all of the power of that. Um, So when Adam names the animals, it's right in line with the commissioning and the call for Adam and Eve to govern and to rule, to guard and to protect, to serve over all of creation. But when it comes to the woman, what's fascinating is that she shall be called woman. But what's missing from that phraseology is that was her name. Adam's naming of woman is absent from that section of scripture Mm -hmm. that we just Mm -hmm. read. So if Adam is naming the animals and calling them and whatever he called them, that was his name. That is a declaration of authority over, but there is no declaration of authority over the woman. In fact, it's just the opposite. Because he, the change in the language there goes from the word Adam to the word Ish and Isha. Everybody say Ish. 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 Isha. 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 Falling right back into the stereotypes again. (laughs) She shall be called woman, for out of man she came. There is a change of terminology and verbiage in this to say that there is something much more deep and mysterious going on with Adam's awakening of, to, of who he is. So, a couple reflections from this study that we've just done. Number one, one can only know oneself facing, recognizing, and valuing, and accepting the other. Adam, the man, begins to recognize who he is as soon as woman emerges onto the scene. It's only when woman emerges onto the scene, the Isha, that he recognizes that he is the Ish. That's the first occurrence of the word Ish. Prior to this moment, every time we talk about Adam, that's the word for just human. That's what we're using. We're Adam, 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 Adam. But now he gets this word Ish, man. And 
let's just put it into practical terms. For, for those of us who are married, we recognize that knowing or reflecting upon who we are oftentimes emerges and is illuminated once you're in a relationship. Like you're, you start relating to somebody else. You start putting yourself up against another person as you do life together. And you start to recognize and realize, oh, wait a second. I didn't, I didn't know I was doing that. I didn't realize I had that personality. I didn't realize that I had that temperament. I didn't realize that I had this quirk. Thank you for pointing it out. <laughs> when you are facing another, that is when you start to recognize and accept and realize who you are, the opposite person. The contrast of that other person helps to illuminate who you are. And that's what happens in the Genesis 2. Ish and Isha, prior Adam, humanity, the, the full scope of what it means to be humans, homo sapiens. And with the creation of woman, Ish and Isha facing each other. He doesn't know he's Ish until he meets Isha. Isn't that an incredible picture? That's beautiful. He doesn't know. He doesn't have full comprehension of who he is as man, of his manhood, until he's opposite facing his Ezer Konegdo. And then he goes, ah, Isha, Ish, I get it. Second reflection, the description of the creation of woman is unique in ancient Near East. That's what A-N-E stands for, ancient Near East literature. This means that throughout all of the found ancient Near Eastern literature, everything we've found, there is no creation account of woman. So you have in your Bible, in the midst of how you would say, maybe we go, wow, the Bible's really patriarchal. There's these issues with women as you read through the Torah. And yes, we have to wrestle with all of those things. But isn't it amazing that you're carrying around a book where God takes time to say, let me explain how woman's created. Let me first explain that male and female are both in my image and in my likeness. Holy cow, that's amazing. And now let's get to the creation of women. And by the way, you only get one line of how God made you, and women get six. Because we're simple. <laughs> yeah, no, that's not true. <laughs> uh, but I think that that's a really interesting thing from an ancient Near Eastern literature, societal, anthropological standpoint. You're carrying around a text that, first of all, describes the creation of woman and gives her time. Six verses pretty amazing stuff. And then lastly, this is man's first utterance. This is the first time he speaks. And the first time he speaks, he, it says, you know, whoa, man, this is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and essentially he's saying this one at last. That's the Hebrew there. Zod pa'am. This one at last. Now, here she is. The thing that At I've last, been waiting the for. The thing I've been waiting for. That's I it. was lonely. God said that wasn't good. At last. And then he goes to that next part and he says, Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called Isha, for she was taken out of Ish. And you can sort of sense this beautiful moment where he's like, Oh, you get me. You can stand here with me. You get me. You're opposite facing me. You're an Ezra Konegdo. I'm understood now in a way that the squirrel couldn't manage. Right? There was just nothing going there. Right? So he's sitting there going, yes, okay. Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Same material. I've been sitting carrying around a clod of dirt and trying to figure out how God did that. And here I am. All right. We've got one more. It's a beautiful picture. 
So what we'd like to do is share with you two stories, very briefly, illuminate some of the ways in which we think about this in the church, and try to draw it back into how this passage in interpreting Genesis chapter 2 in this particular way, Ezra Connecto, can be helpful for us. So story number one. Well, I don't know if you guys know, but I'm, I'm a female pastor. So as a female pastor, um, since I decided when I was 13, through a moment with Jesus, um, where I really felt like God had asked me to be a pastor, I've run into it pretty quickly. Um, you can't, uh, God, you know, I actually wrestled quite a bit with feeling God had made a mistake um, in either my call or in creating me to be a woman. And I wrestled a lot with that um, and, and a lot for, for many years trying to figure out um, what, how I could fit into the church um, in light of my call and my gender. And I would look out at the rest of the world and the rest of the world would say things like, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, you can be an astronaut, you can be the president of the United States maybe someday, right? Like all those kinds of things. But somehow pastoring a 100 or 150 member church, that was out of the question. And I could just never understand it. And I had some really good amazing pastors that walked along with me, that figured things out, that helped and spoke with me on different things. But it was a tough time. And you would think that after now 20 years in ministry that I would have sort of sorted all of that out. But it still kind of follows me around. Actually, not presently. Thanks for everyone being here. Um, But, um, you know, not that long ago, I'd be walking down a hall of a church where I'd be serving. and, And just my name badge alone would cause people to say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Like, well, actually, you should talk to the people who put me in charge. <laughs> they're the ones that think that I should do this, and they're not all women. They're all men. But it was a, it was a constant thing, and, and I think it's popped up in, in different ways, even as we've been married now 15 years, and we've wrestled and, and worked through different things of call and vision and casting and how this all works out in our own marriage in some pretty lovely, beautiful ways. Um, we still get confronted with it. So we were at an event where it's kind of like a meet the pastors event, And this guy whose name we don't know, and I'm pretty sure he barely knows our names, uh, walks directly up to us as we're sitting there. And we're just staying there. We're like, hi, you know, nice to meet you and stuff like that. And he says to Kevin, why didn't your wife change your name? I didn't change my last name. I just never wanted to. It's not a big thing. I just perish. It works really well with the pastor thing. You know, I just always liked it growing up. So, you know. It's like Pastor Parrish. How perfect is that? It's got to keep that thing for a while. And I, my, my name only draws jokes. So. <laughs> yeah, so we've got that. So, um, so he goes up to Kevin while I'm standing there, and I'm like shocked at the boldness and, and really just the rudeness of, hi, would you like to know my name first? Should we greet one another you know, in the name of Jesus? Amen. And, um, and so Ke- Kevin's just, we're kind of sitting there, and I just said, well, I, I just didn't want to. And then he turns to Kevin and he says, so I guess we know who wears the pants in the family, huh? She wears the pants in the family. Which is how people talk about this. People talk about men who are married to women who have vision, who have leadership skills, who are strong. They speak about those men as if they are weak, as if they're whipped, as if they are less man. And yet the Genesis story stands up and says, no, no, it's when he's with the Ezra Connecto that he becomes and fully expresses and experiences the manhood. Now, a lesser man might have said something rude back to this gentleman, but instead Kevin just smiled, and as he said, so I guess we know who, we- who wears the pants in the family, he just smiled and said, that's not true. That's a conversation killer, by the way. You just say, that's not true, and smile gently, and the person has to realize they're rude. 
<laughs> and either cover up their behavior or quietly turn and walk away, which was what happened. So story one for us is that this still happens. The way in which we talk about male-female relationships, the way in which we interact with one another, the way in which we are, we are or are not kind, are loving or are not loving, all of those things um, happen on a regular basis whether, based on the fact of whether or not we believe we're both made in the image of God, whether or not we believe both male and female are equal or if one is subordinate to the other. I think the question actually um, betrays a couple things about that person and the way in which we perceive. So just very briefly... When we get to the Bible, I think this is a much bigger issue than just gender. It's an issue for the things that we bring to the scriptures that may illuminate and inform and in many ways completely influence the ways in which we read these passages. When we read the word help, when we read other passages from Jesus and Paul later on in the New Testament, we bring our cultural gender stereotypes with us. And that person who said that to Danielle with some, in the context of church, in the context of pastoring, brought cultural gender stereotypes. So let's just recognize it. Let's call it out. Let's identify it. Number two, there's, there's some other things that are going on when we talk about this issue regarding role and, role and talent. The word role actually doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. Like this is what a woman's role is versus this is what a man's role. Do you know what the Bible talks about? The Bible talks about talents. The things that you've been gifted to do, the things that you haven't been gifted to do. And so when it comes to this particular issue, and when it comes to gender, and when it comes to your identity as a person, let's talk about talents. Let's talk about the things that you have been gifted to do, things that you feel skilled at, things that you feel called to. And so often, much of the conversation in the church has been dominated by what is your role? What is the thing that you have just simply been identified to do or not to do as a result of your gender or something that you have nothing to do, to do no with? Control no of, control yeah. of. Whereas Jesus sits and talks about, did you bury your talent? What have you been doing with it? And woe to the church community. Woe to all of us. If we've sat and we've said, you, based upon your gender, we're going to force you to bury that talent that God gifted you with, and we're not going to allow you to use it for his kingdom. The next thing to consider is leadership and head. Again, this is something that we're kind of getting into much deeper conversations that we've had and and conversations that you may have later on. Simply to say this, when we think about the word leadership, when we think about the word head, which is kind of the person who's in charge, again, because we bring cultural stereotypes to the table when we have these conversations, it's almost impossible for us to think about leadership outside of an authoritarian top-down, org chart kind of model. And we would like to challenge that to say, maybe there's something radically redemptive in this biblical story in Genesis, as well as the rest of the passages that we're not going to get to today. And we don't have to think about headship, leadership, and all those other terms, just simply in power structures, which is the ways in which we think about them. So hopefully our ministry and this church will challenge, again, some of those cultural expectations about what leadership is. And then lastly, the zero-sum game. 
many times, zero-sum games within game theory is essentially the idea that there has to be kind of an equal and opposite number, kind of positive and negative. So if I gain, in order for me to gain, you have to lose. It's called a zero-sum game. And oftentimes in this kind of conversation, in order for me to have any dignity or identity or even to be in charge or to be, have, have leadership, in order for me to have that, that must mean that she can't or vice versa. And what we're going to suggest and challenge us to think about is that the zero-sum game is just a completely false way of thinking about things. It doesn't have to be zero-sum. It doesn't have to be, in order for me to win, you have to lose. It can actually be, if we think about gifts, talents, story, narrative, ish, isha, ezer, if we think about all this together, then maybe it's a win-win when we begin to accept the fullness um, so th- this is kind of the, the ways in which we're thinking and shifting. And I have learned um, in my own personal leadership as I lead um, my staff and as I lead here at this church and I do various leadership in all, all sorts of different ways, we're starting to recognize that my, I'll just confess to you, I, I realize and recognize that my job as a leader is not to be the person who is in charge, who comes up with all the best ideas and makes all the right decisions. That's a top-down, authoritarian, hierarchical kind of way of thinking about it. I've learned that my leadership responsibility is to ensure that my influence ensures that the right decisions actually live and move and thrive in our organization. I don't care where those ideas come from. My responsibility is to make sure that that best idea or that best decision actually lives and thrives in the organization. That's a completely different way of thinking about things. And I think as we've you know, been leading here at Spark and leading lots of different organizations and events for the last 15 years, we've been better at that at some times and then not so great at other times in our marriage and our ministries and different ways that we work together. And it's been one of the things we've been so excited about with Spark currently is we kind of feel like if we had tried to do this 15, 12, 15 years ago when we first thought about it, I'm not sure it would look this way today. But for whatever reason, like as God's developed us and developed our marriage, it now is so, it feels like the way water flows. That it just finds the right path as it comes down the mountain. And and that where Kevin is strong and in areas where I'm weak, I'm really happy to go, hey, you're so much better at that than I am. Whereas the pride of a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old might have said, "I, I can do it all. And now I think there's things that you've said, you're better at that than I am. And we find those ways and we lean on each other for the, it's, it's truly been wonderful to experience that connecto part where we both get to lean Absolutely. on one another um, and be thankful for the strengths and weaknesses to that. All right, really quickly, story number two. We were, um, there's some friends of ours. We've been in this community for a little while and uh, having this conversation about women, about gender, about all that stuff. What does the Bible say? And there's all sorts of different passages. So we're uh, across the table having this conversation and the person across the table, um, as we are going through this, because there's other churches in this area that teach absolutely the opposite of what we're saying tonight. We recognize this. We want to <laughs> kind of recognize that and honor them as best as we can, kind of a deal. Um, said to me, well, I can see that this is a debatable issue because there's churches that think differently. And I looked across the table, and I didn't have any planned response to that, but I just simply said this. Actually, for me, it's not debatable anymore. This isn't something that we can debate, because for me, this is a matter of justice. And let me share with you why. Um, My journey has just simply been 
I come from a very conservative Christian church. And when my senior pastor, when I was very first Christian, got up and gave a sermon at my church, a very good friend of mine who I trusted, who I respected, said, I don't think that's right. And had very um, opinionated, pointed, strong things to say about a woman preaching from the pulpit. When I went to Bible college, I heard that there was a church here in Silicon Valley that would not let women hand out bulletins because it had the printed word of God in them, and women are not supposed to handle the word of God. So, yeah, yeah. So, when I started learning about, this is all I know, and I start learning, start growing. You um, met me. I I met Danielle. (laughs) Radically changed everything, you know, kind of a deal. (laughs) And started learning and reading and studying and thinking more deeply about this, that this isn't just a matter of opinion anymore for me. This is a matter of justice. Because when you start to recognize that the rest of the world in 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 how God has set up this world, from the Genesis 2 account, is to say that man, for everything that you have and everything that you are and all your qualities and skills and gifts and talents, you need to bring that fully to bear, fully to the creation, to guard and protect this beautiful world that God has created. You need to bring everything of who you are. But you know what, woman? You need to bring everything you are for the exact same purpose and task. And when the two bring them together that's when the fullness of humanity is expressed in this world the way that God designed it, according to the ways in which we're now reading this story. Ezra, help, suitable, equal to, adequate, adequate for, facing. Now, we recognize and we can talk forever about the differences between genders. I would just like to say that's specifically why women and men are needed equally in all of the tasks that we have going forward. Um, if you haven't yet, fully bearing the image. If you haven't yet read um, Half the Sky, highly encourage you to pick that up and read and think about that. If you haven't heard of The Girl Effect, we'd encourage you to check that out. We can give you all of that in emails and, and connections later. Fundamentally, what we're starting to recognize and realize that when, in, when women are oppressed, when girls are oppressed, when they are not allowed to be the full image of God that they have been created to be, It's not just the women that suffer. The entire community suffers. The entire creation suffers. Why? Because a portion of God's image has been silenced, oppressed, or put down. So when it comes to leadership of a church, the fullness of God's humanity, the fullness of God's image needs to be in leadership. When it comes to the home, the fullness of God's image needs to be in leadership. When it comes to society, the fullness of God's image needs to be there. And this, to us, for me, which is why this is a justice issue, falls right, into the, right in lines with the values of Spark. When you think about rescue, it's not just men with the muscles who are going to <laughs> rescue the world. It's women as well, alongside. Now, everybody's going to have a different set of, of gifts and talents and passions, etc. But that's exactly why we are all needed to bear fully and completely on this world. When it comes to reconciliation... I can see this totally working completely because the ways in which men think about or process information to reconcile is very, very different from the way, ways women do that. And guess what? Both are needed in order for countries to come together, in order for broken relationships to come together, and for broken organizations to come together. The fullness of it is. And again, what 
I can't stress it enough, as I've been reading and studying and thinking about this, when we get this issue wrong, and when we read Genesis 2 incorrectly, or when we read about these passages bringing our cultural imposition upon them, this is a justice issue, not just for women. It's for all of us. And I will tell you, for me personally, I was worse a man when I thought more highly of myself. And when I thought that the woman was only supposed to stay home barefoot, pregnant, bake me cookies, get me coffee, or however other, what other, ever other images we may have. Or that women were not allowed to preach or to teach or to hold leadership positions. I will tell you, me personally, I was less of a man as a result of that. Just a, just a couple of resources if you're interested. Half the Sky by uh, Christophe and uh, Cheryl Wudun. There's another church, another church is a book in response to that uh, by Carolyn um, James, Half the Church. And if you're looking for something a little bit lighter and something more fun that has to do with biblical interpretation, A Year of um, Biblical Womanhood by Rachel Held Evans is a fun read. Yeah, I, I think I would just note too that as we think about how the church operates with this, Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were the one place in the world where men and women both could be held in high regard as image bearers and could be fully supported and operating in their giftings? But instead, I've often found as a pastor that when I speak to my friends who are not yet believers out here in Silicon Valley and the community at large, I'm often apologizing for the church. I'm often saying, hey, I would love to have you come and visit, but I do have to explain the fact that we have this issue where women aren't allowed to be in leadership in this particular way or we're not allowed to do this. And then my friends who are high up in companies and, or running their own businesses or doing their own things here in Silicon Valley are like, why would I want to lose the freedom I have in the world for the church? And I have to try to explain that. And I feel like instead what we find in Jesus is that Jesus and Paul both show up into the midst of their communities in first century Israel, in the Greco-Roman world, and they show up and they start pouring their lives into all persons that come into their midst. And this is a larger study for another time, but Jesus has Mary sitting at his feet, which is a rabbinic term. He's got several women in Luke chapter 8 who are supporting his ministry out of their own means. He seems to have women who are following him around just like disciples do. And Paul does the same. He's got women who are sitting there and supporting his ministry, who are leading house churches, who are doing incredible things. One he mentions as an apostle in the Lord in Romans 16. So as we look at all of those passages, as we think about how we want to do this, we're going to start first by saying we're looking at how God intended it, how he set it up, and then we're going to try to get back there again. We know we have a long way to go, but we see that a lot of our scriptures are pointing us in that direction where Jesus and Paul themselves in very patriarchal societies are moving that ball forward down the field and are helping women to be treated with dignity and helping them to fully participate in their faith-based communities. The reason why we can do all this is because we recognize that the fall started like this, naked and unashamed, right? But then it started just the garden started that, but then there's the fall and now they're having to be clothed and they're ashamed. We know that something went wrong. We know that as God set it up the way that we've talked about with Ezra Konegdo, then something did go wrong, which is why then we have this next slide. Reverse the curse. 
If you truly believe that Jesus died on the cross to reconcile you to God, to reverse this curse, to bring us back into right relationship with him, with one another, then what we are saying is that let's fully embrace the entire reversal of that curse. I think a lot of people sit and read Genesis and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then right after they eat the fruit, it says, and the hierarchy enters the picture between male and female. We're saying, why would you embrace that? Reverse the curse. Get back to the garden. That's what the death of Jesus does. The death, burial, and resurrection for us reverses that curse. We get to start to live as things are now being set right. And every time we've decided that we'd rather embrace the consequences of the fall as opposed to living in the way God intended it for all of his creation, where we are equal, where we're adequate for one another, we help one another, we lift one another up, we defend. Every time we decide we'd rather live on this side of the fall rather than back in the garden, we negate the death and sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. What did he do it for if you'd rather live in this world instead of the one he created for us all to be in? Any questions? So let Nick. me just claim that I totally align with everything you just said. I think it's not debatable. I think it's an of justice. But why do you suppose God chooses to create Eve from a piece of Adam rather than distinctly as the way he created Adam himself? I don't know if I can answer that question because if... And I, I, I think I understand and appreciate the question. Why did God choose to create Eve out of a piece of Adam as opposed to like a fully Just distinct from the dirt. So there's so there's a couple. Whenever anybody asks me a question like that, my immediate response is I don't know because there's all sorts of other options that God could have done. What we do know is that God created Eve out of the side, and there's lots of commentary about well, He could have created Eve out of the head or out of the feet to show kind of that picture of hierarchy or um, subordination, but He created Eve out of the side to show e- equality. So, Gail. Well, actually, can I just say that in the Hebrew, that the idea of Adam or Adam actually could be viewed as both male and female. Right. We might right. have covered that already. But, and the side with many of the commentaries about that really have to do with, it's not the way we think of the rib and the side, um, but there was something that was kind of complementary. There, there, there was this view that, that that's what that really meant. Like, mm-hmm. all the other yeah. Right. Right. It gets really mystical because yeah. if you read the Genesis one account carefully, everything gets divided and separated. And if you read, if you follow that train of thought continually, Adam, Adam, humanity, also gets that separation. So in many ways, deep within the Hebrew, it could be very much what you're saying, Nick. And and remember, we're looking at two creation accounts. We've read the first one in Genesis 1, and now this is the expansion of that in Genesis 2. So in Genesis 1, it's male and female. He created them in his likeness and in his image, both as Adam at that same time. Yeah. Yes? Uh, could you articulate more about um, when you were saying, uh, well, I guess when it says that um, woman, like she shall be called woman? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Eve doesn't get her name until chapter 3, after the curse. So in chapter 2, she is named Isha, and out of Ish, Isha. And, and he's named Ish at the same time. And he's named Ish both at the get, same time. Both get that, not a name, but a designation. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's a specificity that in the in the naming of the animals, whatever Adam called Kore, the animal, that was its name. That's what it's Shem. But that phraseology is missing from the creation of woman until chapter three, where Adam, well, the man calls names his wife Eve. There's actually even a, a really beautiful rabbinic midrash. Um, that talks about how when God creates, creates woman here in this passage, he uses the word in Hebrew is to build. And it's really the first time he's using that word, and he doesn't use that word for when he makes Adam. And so um, one of the rabbis comments that it's, um, it, it indicates some complexity, like God is building. And, um, and he, one of the rabbis says it's because, you know, she's more complex, like a little better. Well, one of the, one of the <laughs> like ways to think cartoon, about... cartoon, right? Like, um, why did Adam... Why did God make Adam before Eve? Because you yeah. always make a rough draft before the final copy. Yeah. We're not suggesting that at all. We're suggesting... There's all those jokes. All those that jokes that come through. Yeah. Pamela, and then last question. So it, it kind of follows on to his question in, in the scripture where it says, now this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. And... The interpretation that I hear there is that at this point, Adam is naming the woman or giving the woman a name. Is that that you're saying that she already had a name? She doesn't have a she name. She doesn't have a name. That when he says she shall be called woman, that does not mean that Adam named, named this right. The reason, why, the reason why I'm saying that it's not her name, number one, is it doesn't say, it doesn't say name, but it's, it's specifically in contrast to what happens with the animals. Whatever Adam called the animals, that was their name. And that phrase is missing from that, that next segment. It's, it's glaringly missing. If, if it's kind of in this pattern right here, and then it stops. Also, Adam, Adam for human, also gets a designation here. So if we're looking at this dividing of male-female, then we're looking at now there is man and woman. But it's not, you wouldn't say Adam's name is Ish, right? So her name, Eve's name is not Isha. She's being designated to what she is, not her name. And that comes actually in, in Genesis 3.20. Adam named his wife Eve. And that's where the name... After, and that's after the curse. After the all curse. right, last question, then we'll, we'll make sure. And, we'll, and we can hang out and chat and talk and do all those things. Afterwards. As always. Yes. So I, I do actually agree with everything that you just said. Sweet. <laughs> all right, let's close in prayer. Yeah, that's what... <laughs> so so, so the, the tie into First Timothy, right, is the tie into also this story. Yes. Um, I'm just curious how, what you're the, qu- the question is the tie into the first Timothy, which is one of the most complicated passages. I'll tell you very, very briefly, it's not talking about the same thing we're talking about. There's a completely different cultural context that has to do with Ephesus, that the, the city of Ephesus was a female-dominated city. It had Artemis as its central cult. And the stories that were being told about creation narratives is most likely what first Timothy is addressing in that passage, not to use it as yep. a pretext for hierarchical positioning in the church. Nor, nor do But there's a fuller... I have, right. I have another PowerPoint for that, so that's another, <laughs> that's another day. And there's a great book, Philip Payne's book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, very thick. It'll go through that entire passage for Let's you. Let's close in prayer because we did go late. Thank yes. you guys for hanging with us. Woo-hoo! We appreciate that. Um, Amen. We got, went through a lot. But you guys are just that good. So. <laughs> we bless you, Heavenly Father, so much for creating 
and guiding and building and making this world. And Lord, as we have covered quite a bit of ground tonight in a, in a little bit of a longer message, Lord, I pray that we would be challenged once again to see the full beauty of all of your creation, both man and woman. And I pray that if there's still any questions, God, we can continually wrestle and um, struggle and work those out. Uh, But God, ultimately, may your will uh, be done and may your kingdom be expanded here on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you for Spark Church. Thank Mm -hmm. you for these amazing men and women um, and children in this church that are uh, willing to engage at this level and to think deeply and to Um, read your word with new and fresh eyes and help us illuminate for us, God, deeper meanings and understandings that can really, truly, honestly change our lives, this church, and the world. Um, We bless you, God, for this time. In your holy name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys.